starting in verse 21. Say amen if you're there. Amen. One more thing. Javier, double check that I'm not in the monitors. I'm hearing some sort of echo, and I think that's where our sound may be a little bit awry here. Colossians 1, starting in verse 21. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel, this is the gospel that you heard and has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Here in the first three verses of Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 through 23, uh, Paul identifies the first of three reasons that he does what he does. It's really his, his first of three important ministries that God has called him to carry out. So his most important ministry as a servant of Jesus Christ is this. Paul is focused on sharing the gospel. He's focused on sharing the gospel. He begins in verse 21 by pointing out this stark reality that many people don't want to accept. Look again at what he says in verse 21. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. Now, truth is, that was not a popular message in Paul's day. In a very polytheistic culture where people worshipped many different gods, for someone to come along and say that you're an enemy of God, for someone to come along and say you're alienated from God, it wasn't a feel-good message. And the same could be said about preaching this message in our culture today. As I mentioned to you a couple weeks ago, the fastest-growing religion in America is unaffiliated. More and more people are saying, you know what, I'm a spiritual person. I I consider myself a rather religious person. I consider myself connected with God, but I don't identify with any specific religion or denomination. I'm unaffiliated. And so in this day and age where many people feel that they're connected to God, they feel that they're spiritual, they feel that they're good to go whenever their life ends to be in the presence of their Creator, This is a message that just doesn't go over real well. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. Now let's take a moment to make sure we're not misunderstanding what Paul is saying here. In verse 21, he uses this word alienated at the top of the verse. And this word alienated is a translation of a Greek word that means to be utterly estranged or to be utterly the property of another. So think about what Paul's saying here. He says, once you were completely estranged from God, once you were completely unidentified with God and instead identified and beholden to someone or something else. And so Paul is saying you were, in fact, alienated from God. So the truth is, as we look at Scripture, even the first few chapters of Genesis, we find that it is sin that turned this perfect paradise into an alien planet, and it is sin that turned us into aliens. That's the truth of Scripture. Sin has affected everything on this planet. Sin has affected the land. It's affected the animal kingdom. It's affected human beings. So it did, in fact, turn this beautiful paradise into an alien planet. 
And sin did take you and me who had a perfect relationship with God at one point, at least Adam and Eve at one point did, and made us aliens to God. According to Romans 8.22, this creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth up to this present time. And it groans because creation's harmony with God has been completely broken. Just as we have been crippled by our sin, creation has been crippled by our sin. And maybe you've never considered this in the past. You knew that sin separated us from God, but you never thought about this, that sin actually separates the animal kingdom from God. It separates the land from God. It somehow even affects the sun, moon, and stars, somehow separates that part of creation from God. Sin literally affects everything. What sin does is take that beautiful, perfect harmony and sever it. Now, if this is true, that sin has alienated us from God, and as we stray further from God, that alienation grows... If this is true that sin has alienated creation from God, I think the United States of America serves as a good illustration of this. Uh, Most of you, I think, would agree with me that our founding fathers intended for this to be a Christian nation. You agree with me with that statement? You can look at the historical documents. You can even go back to the Supreme Court's decision in 1892. It's known as the Trinity Decision, where they looked at literally thousands of pages of the Founding Fathers' letters and and original documents. And they came to the conclusion there in 1892 that this is, in fact, a religious people and, quote, a Christian nation. Even the Supreme Court admitted it in the late 1800s. And so that was our Founding Fathers' intent for this to be a Christian nation. And if you study those founding documents and you look at how our our government was formed, much of our government was founded upon scriptural principles. Our separation of powers in our national government was pulled from Scripture so that power wouldn't be centralized in one branch because that could lend itself to disaster as it did in England in those days. And so the separation of powers was biblically based. The idea of having a limited small government was biblically based. The idea of empowering the individual with much freedom to will and to act according to their own personal liberties, that was taken from Scripture. And so these principles, these pillars of our nation were founded on Scripture, but you look at some of those early presidents and some of those early founding fathers and in their documents, some will make it very clear that this democratic republic that they founded by the grace of God in the late late 1700s, this democratic republic was never intended for a people that did not fear God or believe and obey scriptural teachings. And they flat out make it clear in the early years of our nation that this democratic republic is going to fall apart and be torn apart at the seams if Americans ever fail to be a people who fear God and obey His commands taught in Scripture. And what do we find happening over the last 50, 60 years? In the late 1940s, the phrase separation of church and state was run up the flagpole. In the early 60s, systematically, prayer was taken out of public schools. Bible reading was taken out of public schools in 1973, the year I was born. It's not famous because I was born in that year. 1973 is famous is because that was the year of the Roe versus Wade decision that made abortion legal through all nine months of pregnancy in the United States. Our nation over the last 60 years has systematically removed God from the public sphere systematically remove God from public schools and from the courthouses. We can't even put the Ten Commandments in the courthouse anymore because that's far too religious, they say. 
And so as we've removed God from the public sphere in our nation, what has happened? Have we become closer to God or more alienated from God? I hope you all agree because that's just a simple truth. It's true as we sin more and more, the alienation grows. It grows. You see, initially our founding fathers believed that government could be kept small because if we fear God and obey His commandments, then we are able to a very large extent to self-govern. And we no longer can self-govern. Every year more and more and more laws are added to the books because as we've strayed further and further from God, our government can no longer trust us to self-govern. Our government can no longer count on us to exercise self-control and to check our own behavior before we do something. As we've strayed more and more from God, school shootings have increased. Violence has increased. Profanity has increased. Divorce has increased. You name it, it has increased as we've moved further and further away from God and His principles. Paul writes in verse 21, Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. When we are alienated from God, Paul says, we become enemies of God. When we're alienated from God, we become enemies of God. It seems clear that when Paul speaks in Colossians 1.21 about us being enemies of God in our minds, it's an interesting way to put that. He didn't simply say we're just enemies of God with our behavior. He says you become enemies of God in your minds. He seems to be addressing something more severe than just a pattern of, of sin. Uh, Bible commentator N.T. Wright says it this way. He says, quote, It is not simply that habitual wrongdoing has turned the mind away from God. Thought and act are both tainted, each pushing the other into further corruption. Wrong thinking leads to vice. Vice leads to further mental corruption so that the mind, still not totally ignorant of God's standards, finds itself applauding evil. Doesn't this happen today so often in our nation? It's not enough to simply be okay with sin. It's, it's not okay in this day and age in the 21st century to simply tolerate wickedness. We actually have turned the tables and now we applaud it, don't we? Now we applaud wickedness. It's not simply uh, enough to support abortion these days, but now we're told to applaud abortion. The facts are plain to see that in a human womb, in a mother's womb, that little life is in fact a human life. Science has proved that beyond a reasonable doubt in the last 40 plus years since the Roe versus Wade decision was made. It's crystal clear that from the point of conception that's a little human life in the womb. But we're told to stand up and applaud Planned Parenthood and send them $500 million of our tax dollars every single year. Millions of Americans applaud sexual perversion. It's not that we don't know that Fifty Shades of Grey is twisted and perverted. We just ignore the plain truth and applaud it anyway to the tune of $46 million in its opening weekend last week. Whether we're talking about premarital sex or talking about homosexuality or greed or profanity or no-fault divorce or any number of other things, there are so many lifestyle choices that the world celebrates that the Bible says are not in line with God's will and the Bible calls sinful or wicked. So when we turn to Christ, He doesn't simply have to transform our behavior, does He? 
When we turn to Christ, Paul makes a great point here in verse 21, we become enemies in our minds. So when we turn to Christ, when we repent, he doesn't simply have to change my behavior, he has to change my thinking. Because the way I think about things, as I've grown up in this sinful culture of ours, as I've been tainted in the way that I think by all of the viewpoints of those around me, he has to change our thinking. I like how Paul says it in Romans 12 too. He says, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So the truth is, in this alien world that we live in, both our actions and our thinking alienate us from God, make us enemies of God. That's the bad news. That's not too cheery, is it? Our behavior and our thinking alienates us from God. And our thinking and our behavior makes us enemies of God. That's really bad news, isn't it? Someone nod in agreement. That's really bad news. Thankfully, the Bible gives us good news as well. As Paul writes in verses 22 and 23, But now God has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in His sight, without blemish and free from accusation, if you continue in your faith, established and firm, not moved from the hope set out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. So here we go. I'm going to summarize it in a couple quick statements. The bad news is you are a stinking alien. But the good news is God sent Jesus Christ to clean you up and send you on home. Amen? That's the good news. That's the good news. In the movie E.T., Elliot and his little sister and his friends worked together to send E.T. home to his family and friends. In real life, God the Father has teamed up with Jesus Christ and has teamed up with the Holy Spirit, and together they work to make sure that we can be cleansed of our sin if we will come humbly to Jesus Christ asking for that grace and mercy and forgiveness. And they make sure that they can bring us home to heaven, which is our true home. Well, what is this true home? Well, from God's perspective, home is His kingdom. Home is in a restored, unbroken relationship with Him. Home is forgiveness. Home is mercy and grace. Home is holiness. Home is faith in Him. Home is freedom from accusation. Home is love and peace and hope. Doesn't home sound so, so good? That's the home that He's preparing for us. Not this world that has become alienated from Him. Jesus is the only one who can get us there. This is the message, as Paul says, held out in the Gospel. And sharing this Gospel message was Paul's first and most important ministry. That's the first thing that he did. The first reason that he existed. The first reason that Christ called him to be his servant and be his apostle was to share the good news of Jesus Christ. And we only need to glance to that banner to the left. That's our first purpose as a church as well, isn't it? First Christian Church exists to faithfully, number one, share the Gospel. We exist, number one, to do exactly what Paul existed and served to do. To share the good news of Jesus Christ with those who desperately need that grace, that mercy, that forgiveness, that reunited relationship with God. Because the fact is, 
without Jesus Christ, we are alienated from God. Without Jesus Christ, we are enemies of God. And so our first purpose is to bring people to Jesus Christ who do not know Him. I hope that you're 100% on board with this mission. I hope that you're 100% on board with this purpose we have as a church because it's the greatest reason for our existence. If the church of Jesus Christ does not share the gospel, no one else will. If the church doesn't do it, no one else will. Our government's not going to do it. Our public schools are not going to do it. Our city halls are not going to do it. Even all the many nonprofits out there that do some great work, they're not going to do it. Only the church of Jesus Christ can point to Christ and help reconcile people to the God from whom they've been estranged. That's the first reason for which Paul did his ministry. The second reason he's going to share with us in verses 24 through 27. Now I rejoice in what was suffered for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions. For the sake of his body, which is the church, I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the saints. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Remember that when Paul wrote this letter to the Colossians, he was imprisoned at the time. He was under house arrest, most likely in the city of Rome, awaiting trial from the emperor. And so he was arrested for something he didn't do. He was wrongfully, falsely accused of a crime there in Jerusalem. He's hauled across the Mediterranean Sea on a ship. That ship eventually crashes. They have a shipwreck. God miraculously saves his life. He eventually makes it to Rome. And if you read the last few verses of Acts 28, you see that when the book of Acts ends, he's for two years under house arrest there in Rome awaiting his trial. And we believe it was during that time that he wrote this letter to the Colossian Christians. And so there he is in jail, under house arrest from Rome, writing this letter. And so if we put the pieces together, what seems to happen, and we'll see this, I think, a little more clearly next week when we look at chapter 2, what we see happening as we put the pieces together is that these critics, these, these naysayers, were coming into the Colossian church, and they were sowing some false teaching into the church. And these naysayers evidently were coming in and saying, you know what, I know that uh, Epaphras uh, was one of Paul's disciples and he planted this church and he did a pretty good job. But think about it, Epaphras was trained by Paul. And Paul is sitting over there in jail in Rome. How great can he be? The guy's a jailbird. The, the guy has got handcuffs on him. He might be writing this letter, but his hands are shackled together. You actually are going to take his word to the bank, what he's saying about God? Have you ever considered the possibility that maybe Paul is off his rocker? Maybe there's a reason he was arrested? Maybe he isn't that great hero of the faith that you once thought? And so they're trying to create doubt in the Colossians' minds about the Apostle Paul. And so what does Paul do here in verses 24 through 27? He turns the tables. He turns the tables on his critics. Yes, it's true that I'm suffering imprisonment. But my imprisonment, he says, is for your good. It's for your good. It was to their advantage that Paul was sitting in jail. He says his second most important ministry was serving the Gentiles. Serving the Gentiles. 
The Colossian church was comprised mostly of Gentile Christians. They weren't ethnically Jews. They weren't religiously Jewish. And Paul was thrilled that he had been given the privilege of being the apostle to the Gentiles. From his perspective, it was a great privilege and honor to serve those who had been once so far from God. Look again at verse 24. He says, Now I rejoice in what was suffered for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. Now, this verse, verse 24, is a tough one to interpret. I want you to look at that, those words again. I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions. What on earth does that mean? I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions. Well, let's start with what we know it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that somehow Jesus' death on the cross was insufficient. It doesn't in any way mean that when Jesus went to the cross and he suffered before he went to the cross, that somehow that didn't cut the mustard, and so Paul has to add to Jesus' suffering in order to make that suffering complete. Paul had just said a few verses earlier, in verses 18 through 20, that Jesus' sacrifice was sufficient. Amen? Nothing can be added to it. So it doesn't mean that, but what does it mean? Well, let me give you three possibilities, and you can pick the one you think is right. Number one, first possibility, Paul's saying that he was simply experiencing the suffering for the cause of Christ that Christ promised would come his way. Jesus didn't mince words. He made it clear to Paul, if you follow me, you will undergo suffering for the cause of Christ. You will suffer much as you follow me. That could simply be what Paul is saying here. Second possibility, I like this one a lot. Paul is saying that he is happily drawing enemy fire so that the Colossians don't have to experience as much suffering themselves. I like that. Paul might be saying he's drawing enemy fire. How many of you saw uh, Jurassic World a couple years ago when that came out? Okay, all 20 of you. Okay, am I the only weird one that watched those kind of movies? Oh, well. So anyways, in that movie, there's that great scene at the end where you've got this horrible T-Rex mutated dinosaur as they thrust together the DNA from several different species. And this thing, this, what do they call that breed again? I forget. Yeah, Indominus Rex. Thank you. And so this, this huge, super-sized T-Rex is chasing after our heroes. And he's about to gulp them all down. And so one of the heroines takes the flare and she snaps it and she starts waving that in the air as if to say, hey, you stupid T-Rex, come and get me instead. Come and get me instead. And what does the dinosaur do? And he starts chasing after her instead. One, one more time, just like that. Doing this direction too. And so this, this dinosaur comes chasing after her. She's drawing the fire, isn't she? And so those huge carnivorous teeth come chasing after her instead. Then she has to figure out what to do once he starts chasing her, but that's another story. I, I imagine that. I know I think kind of weirdly. You know, my, my thoughts aren't always sane. But this is kind of what I imagine as Paul's writing this here. that he, He's filling up in his flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's affliction. He's saying, Colossian Christians, you should be happy that I'm sitting in this jail cell over in Rome. I'm drawing a whole lot of fire, even from some of those yahoos that are coming into your church and trying to lead you away from the truth. I'm taking on all this enemy fire, and I'm saying, bring it on. 
bring it on because you guys are new in your faith and I want to shield you from as much attack from the enemy as I possibly can. Maybe that's what Paul's saying here. Third possibility, he's saying that God is predetermined that a certain amount of Christian suffering must take place before Christ's return. So out of love for Christ and the church, Paul will shoulder as much of that suffering as possible. I like that. God in His sovereignty possibly has said, there is a certain amount of suffering my church must undergo before I send Jesus back to take the church home. And Paul said, if that's the case, I want to take on as much of it as possible once again to spare you the pain and suffering. We don't know for sure which of these possibilities is correct. Maybe all three somehow are woven in. Paul is happy to suffer for the sake of the church. You could boil it down to this. He has this deep conviction that as we serve Christ, our suffering always, always, always has a purpose. Have you discovered that in following Christ? Have you discovered this truth? Suffering stinks. Suffering is painful. Sometimes suffering is exhausting, isn't it, Alan? Sometimes there are days, man, it is just the worst. But you know what? When you're serving Jesus Christ and you're doing His work, it always has a purpose. Verses 25 through 27. Paul finishes the chapter by saying this. He says, I have become its servant by the commission that God gave me to present to you the Word of God in its fullness, the mystery that has been kept hidden from ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the saints. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim Him admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. To this end I labor, struggling with all His energy, which so powerfully works in me. So Paul's ministry wasn't only about sharing the gospel, it was also about teaching Gentiles the Word of God in its fullness. In other words, not just part of the Bible, not just the uplifting parts of the Bible, not just the popular parts of Scripture, but all parts. That was his job. And in verse 26, Paul uses this wonderful word, mystery. And he uses this word, mystery. It's, it's much different than the way we use mystery today. We, we think of the mystery machine and you know, Shaggy and Scooby going down to solve some weird uh, supernatural puzzle that no one else can figure out. We think of mystery as something almost kind of hocus-pocus, something weird, something undiscoverable, some, something that deserves to be on X-Files. And that's not how it's used in the New Testament. In the New Testament, a mystery is a truth or insight that was once hidden in Old Testament times that God is pleased to reveal in New Testament times. Something they didn't understand in the Old Testament that God reveals in the New Testament. And so Paul mentions several mysteries as he's writing his letters in the New Testament. And here, in Colossians 1, verses 26 and 27, this is the mystery he's talking about. The Gentiles, remember Gentiles are non-Jews, the non-Jews will be given the same opportunity to be saved by Christ as Jews were given. And Gentiles who accept Christ as Lord and Savior will be accepted into His church on equal terms with Jewish Christians. That's a huge insight. That's a huge revelation. And think about it. In Paul's day, as the gospel began to be shared 
with non-Jews as it began to be shared with Gentiles, it only took a few years before the Gentile Christians were outnumbering the Jewish Christians, right? And here we are today, if we look at the number of Christians on planet Earth, the Gentile Christians far, far outnumber the the, uh, Jewish Christians. And so this is something they had no idea of in Old Testament times. In Old Testament times, the Jews knew that God was going to send His Messiah to be the King of the Jews and to bring salvation, but they didn't have any clue that Jesus Christ would come not just for them, but also for the non-Jews, and it wouldn't be too long before those non-Jewish Christians would outnumber the Jewish Christians. They had no idea. But Jesus revealed in the New Testament this beautiful truth. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Paul's first ministry was to share the gospel. To share the good news with people who are alienated and, and enemies of God. His second purpose, his second ministry was to serve the Gentiles. He loved speaking to Jewish people, but he was so thrilled that God chose him to be the apostle to the non-Jews. To allow these people who were so far from God to be brought back to him in a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. And his third and final ministry, as he finishes the chapter in verses 28 and 29, his third ministry is to the struggling, is struggling for the church. Struggling for the church. Paul uses this word struggling in verse 29. He uses it again in verse 1 of chapter 2 that we'll look at next Sunday. It's the translation of a Greek word from which we get our English word agonizing. And I like this word struggling. I don't think it's an accident that God had us in this section of Scripture today because struggling was a word that was used quite often in Paul's day in the Olympic Games. So here we are in the midst of the Winter Olympics and uh, Paul was pulling this term that was used in the Greek Olympics back then. This word struggling was used oftentimes of a racer or a runner who was struggling to the finish line so he could finish that race first. This word struggling was used of wrestlers, and these Greco-Roman wrestlers would be wrestling their opponent and leaving everything on the mat. They were struggling to win this match. This word struggling would have been used of boxers who were pummeling their other opponent and trying to, to win that match, to win that fight against their opponent. And so this wonderful Olympic term he's using here, whether it's the racer running or whether it's the wrestler wrestling or the boxer fighting, they're leaving everything out on the racetrack, leaving everything on the mat, bringing everything from within them that they can muster to win that fight. Here he is saying, this describes me. In the same way, this describes me. I'm running hard for Christ's church. I'm wrestling physical and spiritual enemies for Christ's church. I'm battling through exhaustion and pain with all Christ's energy for Christ's church. And what does Paul hope to accomplish from all of this struggling? According to verse 28, he struggles to admonish and teach everyone with all wisdom so that he may present everyone perfect in Christ. Perfect in Christ. Now this word perfect is a little intimidating, isn't it? How many of you are perfect? It's even more, more you know, intimidating when we read this same word as Jesus uses it in the Sermon on the Mountain, Matthew 5.48. Jesus simply says, Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And you're like, okay. Not going to happen, Jesus. 
That's what he said, be perfect. Now, this word perfect does not mean absolutely 100% sin-free. This word perfect is a translation of the Greek word teleos, which means to be mature and complete. For both Christ and Paul, it wasn't just a matter of us avoiding all sin. Both Christ and Paul wanted us to become fully mature in Christ and holy and completely what Christ saved us to be. Amen? Paul didn't want his Christian friends in Colossae to just run their Christian race well. He wanted them to finish their race well. After all, our time on this alien planet is so short. It's not going to be much longer before God calls each of us home. So we don't have any time to lose, do we? We need to follow in Paul's footsteps by, number one, sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with our fellow aliens around us who don't even realize they're alienated from God. We need to follow in Paul's footsteps by, number two, serving Gentiles. As God gives us opportunities, it's wonderful to serve the Jewish people, but let's face it, the vast majority of our neighbors are Gentiles. The vast majority of people around us are non-Jews, so we must serve them as Paul served them. And number three, we, like Paul, must struggle for the church. We must fight. We must wrestle. We must run to present everyone perfect in Christ, mature and complete. Christ in us, the hope of glory. As we serve Christ and His followers in the church, we need to dig deep, church. We need to dig deep. We need to run hard. I need to run hard for you. You need to run hard for the person that you serve in your ministry. You need to fight in prayer for those that are struggling in this church. We need to struggle for each other. Christ's church needs you to run. We need you to wrestle. We need you to fight with all Christ's energy, which so powerfully works in you. I love how Warren Wiersbe says this. Don't miss this wonderful quote. It's on the screen for you. Paul devoted his life to the care of the church. Paul did not ask us, as do some believers, what will I get out of it? Instead, Paul asked, how much will God let me put into it? What a marvelous perspective. What a marvelous attitude to have. God, I don't want to go to church today. What am I going to get out of it? I don't want to serve today. I don't want to get out of bed. I don't want to give an offering. I don't want to serve. Wham, wham, wham. We complain a lot, don't we? What a wonderful attitude Paul had. Kind of reminiscent of JFK, isn't it? But so much more powerful because he's not just talking about the United States of America. He's talking about this whole world that God has placed us in to serve. How much will God let me put into it? I'll leave you with 1 Corinthians 15, 58. My favorite verses. Not absolute favorite, but one of my favorites. Therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully. Notice he doesn't say 90%, not 95 or even 99%. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know, you know this, don't you? your labor in the Lord is never in vain. Lord Jesus, I thank you for this marvelous passage. 
after Paul, in verses 18 through 20, made it clear that Jesus Christ is over all creation and He is over all eternity and He is Lord of everything, Paul gives us these wonderful verses letting us see what makes Him tick. Letting us see what fires Him up. He gets up every morning knowing that you give Him opportunities to share the Gospel. He perseveres through His imprisonment because, Lord, You give Him opportunities to serve the Gentiles and point a people who are alienated from God back to God. And He gets up every morning with a smile on His face, ready, Lord, to struggle for the church, to fight the good fight, to finish the race, to keep the faith because it is never in vain. May we have that same attitude, Lord, as you call us to serve you and carry out your purposes each day. In Jesus' name. You're here today and you need prayer. We'd love to pray with you during this time of invitation. You're here and you need to make a decision for Christ. It's awesome to look out here. Got Saeed and Frank out here, two of the three brothers that were baptized just two weeks ago. What a great opportunity God gives us to share this simple message. It may not be popular. It may not be politically correct, but it's true. Without Jesus Christ, you are estranged from God. This is not your home. God created you for a much better home than this one. But only Jesus Christ can help you get there. You're estranged from God. If you're alienated from God today, we'd love during this time of invitation to share with you how you can be reunited with God once again through Christ. So if you need prayer, you come. If you need to get right with Christ, you come. Let's stand together as we sing this song.